Hello and welcome to everyone uh, for this second episode of Money Talks, Altfi's monthly webinar series for 2022. My name is Oliver Smith, Managing Editor of Altfi. Um, now, I have two very special, uh, exciting announcements for today. Uh, the first, if you haven't heard already, is that this show is now available as a podcast. So if you want to make sure you never miss an episode, uh, or maybe you would prefer to join us on your AirPods while you're out walking the dog, um, click on the link in attachments and you can subscribe to Money Talks in your podcast app of choice. Uh, but obviously, we hope many of you will continue to join us here live in Bright Talk, especially because it's the only place you get to ask our speakers um, all of your own questions just by popping them in the, in the box below this talk. Um, now, the second exciting announcement is going to be coming a little later on in the episode, so bear with me for that. Speaking of episodes, uh, we've got some great shows uh, of Bright Talk, uh, sorry, of Money Talks coming up later this year. Next month in March, I'll be joined, uh, we'll be exploring the lasting impact of COVID-19 on alternative lending, uh, and we'll be joined by speakers from Zopa and Thincats. Then in April, uh, to mark UK FinTech Week, we'll be asking where UK FinTech goes next after the phenomenal decade we've had. Um, and I'll be joined by Janine Hurt, who's the CEO of Innovate Finance, and Sarah Williams-Gardner, the CEO of FinTech Wales, to help answer that question. Um, you can register for those episodes, or indeed any of our 2022 Money Talks episodes, right now on Bright Talk. Um, and if you're a podcast subscriber, they'll all magically appear on your smartphone each month. Now, today, uh, we're going to be looking back at four years of open banking, uh, that follows on from the UK's four-year milestone, uh, which was just last month on the 13th of January. Uh, I've got three expert guests who are here with me today to help unpack what has happened in open banking since 2018 and maybe touch a little on what's coming up next. So let me bring them on screen and introduce them now. Um, First up, Charlotte Crosswell is the Chair and Trustee of the Open Banking Implementation Entity. Um, welcome, Charlotte. How are you? And first question, when did you first hear of open banking? Oh, crikey. I'm going I'm to think about that one, Oliver. You caught me out there. Um, but uh, but great, to, great to be here and great to see you, obviously, as always. Um, thanks for the invitation. Um, open banking, I mean, I've been around the fintech scene, as you probably know, for some time now. So all I'm going to say with my, with my memory that my daughter would call as like a sieve, that it's as long as I can remember. Um, so I'll, I'll fudge the answer there. <laughs> well, let's see if anyone can beat that. Um, Eyal Sivan, let me welcome you as well, Head of Open Banking at Axway, joining us all the way from Canada, I believe. That's correct. Yes, uh, and also the host of the Mr. Open Banking podcast, which everyone should also subscribe to, of course. Um, how are you? And do you remember when you first heard of Open Banking? Yeah, I remember it very vividly. I was um, uh, with CIBC, a major Canadian bank at the time, and I was uh, doing a bit of a world tour bragging about the uh, microservices framework that we had built. And I ran into um, a gentleman named Gunnar Berger at a conference in Oslo. He is the head of open banking at Nordea. And what struck me was his title, uh, head of open banking. So I uh, invited him to have a couple of drinks. 
He told me all about what open banking was, and um, it was a, a bit of a life-changing moment, uh, uh, resulting in, uh, among other things, the Mr. Open Banking podcast. Fantastic, fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, and lastly, let me introduce uh, Yasmin uh, Karimi, who's the head of product at Codet, uh, which makes a financial API provider for small business data. Um, Yasmin, how are you? And same question, obviously. When did you first hear of open banking? Hey, Oliver. Um, very well, thank you. I hope everyone else is as well. And, and thank you um, from me as well for the invite. Um, thinking back to when I, I can't remember the exact time, kind of similar to Charlotte, but around 2015, it must have been kind of when everything was just um, starting, partly because I worked for Vogelink, which is basically the payment infrastructure for the UK acquired by MasterCard a few years after that. And a lot of what Vocalink was doing was actually enabling the open banking infrastructure for the banks, because a lot of the um, a lot of what we did was for banks. So a lot of the projects that were actually just kind of getting open banking started, I was I had the opportunity to be involved in. Fantastic, fantastic. Well a lot of experience of open banking um, on our on our panel today. So Let's let's get started. My first question, just to help set the scene, um, is a simple question, um, but also maybe quite a challenging one. Eyal, I'm going to throw it open to you. Um, where did open banking come from? <laughs> oh, nice one. Okay, so uh, you're going to tempt me to get into the whole what is open banking thing. Um, but uh, let's start with, with I think, uh, the, the sort of uh, not debatable uh, uh, start of the regulatory push for open banking, which really started in Europe as part of the PSD2 regulation, which came out of the SEPA uh, initiatives. A lot of the same people were working on a uh, payment union across uh, the EU. And um, it was a follow-on to the Payment Services Directive 1, obviously, hence the 2. But it was really the legislation that led to a lot of discussions at the government level around data ownership, data portability, the stagnation that they were observing within the uh, financial services ecosystem and a lot of that stagnation coming from um, overly concentrated markets in many cases. I mentioned when I met uh, uh, Gunnar in Oslo, what I what I then did after I got home from that conference was, was spend the weekend, because uh, I'm a giant nerd, watching legislators argue in Europe about PSD2 on YouTube. And uh, it was amazing how uh, they realized they had crossed some sort of threshold into an entirely new kind of discussion. And it very quickly became apparent that this is larger than just banking. Uh, this is really a, a conversation about privacy, about identity, about, about data. Um, so it all started with those legislators taking something that was prior, the domain of really business, of really the market, and, and bringing it to that that point where government has to opine on, well, wait a minute, some of these market forces have led to concentration, stagnation, lack of competition, lack of transparency. Now, uh, as, a, as a colleague of mine would say, little o, little b open banking, uh, which is to say uh, the kinds of things open banking can do um, without regulation ha has been around for a long, long time. It's part of a gradual evolution that you could broadly call the digital banking or, you know, the, the, uh, the move of, of banks away from the sort of branch concentration towards digital equivalence. And that's been happening for well over a decade, really, with the dawn of the internet. Um, things like aggregation functions, uh, being able to initiate real-time payments and so on, uh, alternative providers for those kinds of things have been around 
somewhere out there in the market for, I'd, I'd say, uh, 10 to 15 years. But what open banking really does, and this is the amazing part, it says, let's standardize this. Let's make sure that uh, when, when you need account information, when you need transactions, when you need to send a payment, there's a common way to do it. All the players in the ecosystem follow that way. And what's exciting to see is that's happening both in market-driven regions as well as regulated regions like the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and Charlotte, bringing this to yourself, um, my next question is how developed is open banking today? Obviously, since that, that legislative sort of beginnings and even before that, things have accelerated massively over the last couple of years. So where are we up to today? Um, and I think that's, you know, it's a good sign, isn't it? When we, we talk about regulation, but regulation is there to, to mandate things. Um, it's actually what does industry do to develop that uh, beyond that regulation? Um, and uh, like AL, when you look at these directives and the negotiations around them, um, you know, unless you're around that negotiating table, it's quite interesting, which is the push and pull from different, different countries across, uh, just definitely across Europe, where you're trying to work a path forward where everyone comes to an agreement. Um, so it's very rare that the whole piece of it gets looked at as a whole and then said, right, where are we trying to develop this to? What does it do for consumers and, and businesses? It's more around where do we all get to agreement? And so you, the challenge you have when we, when we see these directives is then how do we take that forward into reality? How do we bring this into perhaps, should we say, a reluctant incumbent banking um, entity and into the entrepreneurial spirit of the founders? Um, so we're actually five years on um, this year for, for this month from the retail market investigation order. So the competition remedy brought in um, to implement open banking, to go beyond the PSD2 and look at how do we actually make this a reality. Um, so five years, so it's not just four years um, of obviously OBIE being around, but five years since the original order. And that's, you know, that 11 months um, until implementation just shows you the complexity of what the mission was. Um, four years on, we could say what the UK did was quite incredible. It, it took that lead. It took a brand that most people on the street wouldn't know what open banking is, and I would argue they probably don't need to. Um, and it brought it to reality um, of you know, a hugely successful market that's built the foundations. And I think it is important that we talk about the foundations um, that's allowed us to bring this technology and the scope of technology in around the world. Um, so you know, over, over here in the UK, obviously, we've got 4 million UK consumers, um, 4.6 if, if you want the latest statistics and watch the space for new statistics coming hot off the press soon, um, and over 300 active regulated firms. But I'd say we're still you know, relatively at the beginning. When we look back in 20 years time, we will see this very much as the end of phase one. And the excitement is what comes next. Mm. Um, some very interesting stats there, especially the 4.6 uh, million users, which is great Great to hear that. Um, Yasmin, obviously Kodak is not just based in the UK, you've got some sort of global reach. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how, how developed open banking is in the rest of the world? Yeah, so um, the really positive thing is that there's lots of movement in lots of markets. Um, I suppose I can go into a couple of examples. So in Australia, there is the CDR, which is a consumer data right, which came into force in July of 2020. So again, quite a few years kind of kind of after we um, began starting, but actually from Australia's perspective, the scope is a little bit wider. And the reason why it was prioritized is a bit different. So it's more about data ownership, whereas in Europe, the inception of open banking was focused on spurring on competition. 
between established banks and allowing new entrants into the market. So that's kind of how I would summarize uh, Australia's obviously lots of other moving pieces. And then in terms of the US, um, as we know, there is no, there is still no regulatory framework, but what's really, really interesting about the market like the US is it's taken a bit of an opposite journey in comparison to Europe. Um, so over here, we started with regulation and then relied on adoption. But in the US, the concept of open banking has already been validated in the market, despite there being no official standard. And the numbers speak for themselves. So that like, I think the number off the top of my head is 30% of the US population uses applications that combine more than one data source of which bank accounts are a primary source of that. So that's actually massive, especially for a market as big as that. And again, from a regulatory perspective of the US, the market is slowly catching up um, with this usage. So you now have bodies like FDX, the financial data exchange, who are focused on creating a standard, although you know it's still not quite there because screen scraping is still quite prevalent. And then President Biden making remarks about encouraging regulation, all, all really, really positive signs in the US. And then moving on to um, neighboring countries like Canada, again, a very similar approach to the US where it has been market driven, although the deadline to conform to a standard, because there is a standard there, isn't until July 2023. So I'm um, still still a way to go. But I think the real positive takeaway from all of this is that lots of countries have and are embracing open data as a concept. And what we're finding, um, and I like to say taking the lead from Europe, is that they're starting with open banking. Mm. Mm. It's interesting, all these countries all moving in the same direction, maybe in, in different paths and different routes, but all, all heading towards the same goal. Um, Charlotte, in the, in the UK, uh, do, you consider, do you consider open banking um, has been a success so far? And, and why is that? Um, I, think, I think you have to remember that I'm, you know, I'm chairing the implementation entity, so I, I'm slightly biased maybe on, in, in what's been achieved. And I think we do have to look at what's been achieved to look at that success question. Um, as I said, you, you, you get people around the table, um, many of which were really opposing views of what was in the order, what was the PSD2, and then mm. what was the art of the possible coming in from the entrepreneurs bringing this about. Um, and you roll us forward four years on and the growth of users now, and it is accelerating. Um, so definitely the hockey stick that we, you know, we would always have anticipated, um, I think is, it shows the testament to the success of what's been, you know, come behind us. Um, the critics out there will say, well, hold on, has it, you know, has it achieved account, account switching? Um, I think we have to remember, you know, we've gone way beyond account switching with what the technology provide for. And we have to also divide that up even further into open banking payments and open banking data. Um, and obviously we have potential legislation coming in from smart data, which again could, you know, has the opportunity to unlock what's next. But you know, coming down to those statistics I used earlier, so just shy of 4 million as consumers and 600,000 is, is businesses, all getting a better journey through financial services, a better, more open and transparent and more efficient journey than they had um, when we were a few years ago. Um, you know, the open banking payments in itself, and that's we're really seeing the acceleration of that. Um, there's some great use cases out there. Um, you know, at the end of the year, the statistics on that was 26.6 million of open banking payments had been made. Um, and as we see that being rolled out um, into um, where we're going next, it's you know, there's some uh, great statistics there that are only like more likely to, to uh, increase. So it's been you know, a slow start, but the foundations were the most important thing to get right. And I think we can all agree that those foundations have contributed to the success of where we are today. Mm, interesting. I mean, th that's that's 
all uh, really good. It's very much from a consumer point of view. I guess, uh, Yasmin, the flip side of this is also that open banking is having an impact on the SME community. Um, has, has open banking been as successful uh, over there as well? Yeah, it's really difficult. So I think I'll, I'll start by saying, and kind of just, I know everyone, a lot of people have a good understanding of this, but SMEs really you know, make up a large portion of our economy, 99% so. Um, and I think that they've been able to benefit from a large portion of open banking. And in terms of like that percentage of, of benefits, I think PwC did a study recently where 71% of SMEs was, were expecting to be benefited by open banking in some way by the end of 2022. That's a massive portion of that, 99%. So a very positive story. In terms of what that actually means in practice, account aggregation is a really, really good example. So being able to see all of their data and all their bank accounts in one place, in particular, obviously, on, on the bank account, since we're focused on open banking. Um, but general data visibility and consolidation has an impact on the types of apps that small businesses choose to use. So they may choose to go to one technology provider more so than another who enables them to see all of their data in one place. And that's that's really, really key. So um, in terms of a practical example of that data visibility, some of our clients allow businesses to connect their bank account to view all of their data inside their app. That's, that's practically what I mean. And then in terms of payments, so payments is a little bit different from that account aggregation and visibility of data. So where we've seen open banking payments become more integrated to small businesses experience has actually meant that the experience is a lot better for the small business, whether that is the small business being able to pay an invoice from inside their accounting software because of embedded finance, but that that um, payment system is actually operating on an open banking um, provider or through some other channels so that that embedded finance aspect of open banking has been really successful. And then on the topic of payments, I think there's still a very large untapped opportunity. I partly say this because of my own experience in payments, where some education still needs to happen about why payments via open banking are actually beneficial to the small business, why it's, why it's good for them, basically. And partly because they save time not having to deal with multiple acquirers when trying to process card payments or suddenly being cut off because they fall outside of a, an acquirer's risk model, which is a very, very real problem, in particular for businesses who are, you know, started during the pandemic and could be deemed as risky. And then generally, I would say, just to kind of close this off, small businesses connectivity is a super important thing. And open banking, yes, has helped towards that, but there's a lot more to do outside of open banking because of how complex that ecosystem of applications is for a small business in comparison to a consumer. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, Eyal, you've, you've been hearing uh, a little bit there about what's happening on the consumer side in the UK and, and also touching on the SME side. Um, is the picture the same in North America um, in terms of use, adoption, both among consumers and SMEs? Yeah, uh, great question. I forgot, uh, like my uh, other two panelists, to thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much, Oliver. It's uh, great to see you again. Great to be here. Um, this comes back to that question of, of the broader digital transformation that's been happening to banking for a decade plus, longer. You could easily tell it as a complete story running from essentially the dawn of computing where banks were one of the first primary users of large mainframes all the way to today as banks continue to implement new technologies to keep up with user demands. What we see happening in North America, and uh, Yasmin was absolutely right, it, it is market driven and very much uh, an area where you, where you see high adoption, but high adoption of market-based solutions. So for example, if you go 
uh, to a, a, an average American on the street and say instant payments, well, they'll say, yeah, of course we have instant payments, we have Zelle. And you say, well, what about aggregation? They say, of course we have aggregation, we have Plaid. So they very much adopt these use cases that drive what uh, what they need, the sort of uh, financial utility that you get from open banking, but it's very much dominated by these market players, leads to things like screen scraping, questions about unregulated data, and so on. And as uh, Yasmin said, you see organizations like FDX, like the Koya, even the White House speaking up last year, uh, starting to strike that balance. I think if we've learned anything from the experience in Europe and the UK, and this is uh, not really answering your question, which, which I promise I'll come back to, but I think if, if we've learned anything is that this question of, should it be regulated or market-driven is a bit of a red herring. Everywhere where open banking has been successful, the market and uh, the regulator has found some way to get along, some means of recognizing that there is no way for them to do it without at least something, some sort of guardrails uh, from the other side so that they can get the ball rolling. Uh, and likewise, any regions that have tried to draw that as a hard line, it's it's become something of an excuse and stalled any, any sort of progress. Um, a great example of that is Brazil. Axway is very active in Brazil. Um, We've helped seven banks go to production with their newly minted open banking APIs. And it's a wonderful culture of cooperation between the market and the regulators. But the great thing about a market-driven uh, region, and, and this comes back to your question, is that they are all about the value. They are all about the innovation. There is no mandate. There are no dates. So you have to be able to demonstrate something that is actually useful and actually helps, whether it's a consumer or a small business, either save money, create more money, or, or somehow be able to justify the expense of adopting these technologies. Again, no regulation, no mandate. As a result, you see some really interesting use cases emerging where um, they exist there, but they might not exist yet in genuine open banking, you know, proper capital O, capital B open banking environments. And I, I think what you're going to see them is, you're, you're going to see them learn from each other. You're going to see the regulated regions say, hey, here's how you do standardized security and standardized APIs. And uh, you're going to see the market-driven regions, like not only North America, but Southeast Asia, send ideas to these open banking regulated markets of how they can build on that. Let me give you a, a concrete example in the SME market. A use case that's getting uh, more and more attention in North America is what's known as treasury on demand. Now, treasury on demand essentially means give me an API mechanism to get real-time connectivity to your money management systems, connected to whatever I as a small business am using to do my cash management. And instead of all this horrible batch file paper exchange stuff that has been happening for a long, long time, I want a real-time view of my cash position. I want you as a bank to provide me with the intelligence I need to, to drive that cash position on a real-time basis. And maybe even automate a bunch of payments so that I can actually rebalance uh, in an automated fashion and so on. Um, there are lots of players moving into this market. There are banks building their own in-house solutions to move into this market. But from an ecosystem perspective, uh, it is the same general idea that I have APIs that allow me to connect to the broader ecosystem, give me a full picture of my cash position as a small business. Where it gets different is this isn't a fintech app that is connected to my consumer bank account, I now need it to connect to, say, my QuickBooks so that it can actually exchange streams on a real-time basis. So you get completely new ideas. Now, case in point, uh, this has ultimately led to FDX, where Axway is a member, uh, creating a treasury working group 
that in addition to developing the kind of APIs that are parallel to what you see out of, say, the OPIE, they're also now uh, looking at treasury APIs. So you can very much imagine a future where FTX creates a treasury API, Europe and the UK take notice and go, well, we should add that to our standard as well. Um, so that, that's the kind of dynamic we see uh, emerging. Mm. It's really interesting, uh, as you're describing, you know, these these market driven approaches where use cases really are essential in improving the viability, the usefulness of, of open banking and, and providing momentum behind it. Um, obviously, the UK has been a little bit different, um, but the same kind of question to, to Charlotte, what, what use cases are demonstrating that kind of growth, potential growth um, in the UK at the moment? It's certainly coming back to the payment side, this is where we're seeing real growth um, and some really innovative um, use cases coming in that people just wouldn't even even imagined a year ago. Um, so you, you take the tax example with HMRC. Um, this is relevant, obviously, if you look at efficiency across government, um, you're paying your taxes to HMRC can now be done by open banking. That didn't exist a year ago. Um, so I haven't got the latest stats because I don't think they've been released since the, uh, since the January self-assessment deadline. Um, the latest statistics that came out of that was just shy of two and a half billion pounds have been paid um, into HMRC and in tax. Why is that relevant? Because there's six billion pounds in held in suspense accounts at HMRC where someone's used one digit wrong. Um, and that's meant that that poor person is getting fined because it looks like they haven't paid their tax on time. The cost to government of trying to match up those suspended payments is just quite incredible. And just so, you know, a relatively small use case, but the potential then to think about how else you do it. You can you can pay your court fine, um, you know, by open banking, would you believe? Um, and my favourite one that came across my screen this morning, if you haven't seen it, um, is ITV has decided to... Um, to allow open banking payments. So if you're into a competition on I'm a Celebrity, you can now use open banking. Um, so who, who would have known ta tax and, uh, and I'm a Celebrity in one sentence? Um, but joking aside, obviously your utilities bills, your, your, your sit the more efficiency there, you won't see it as open banking as an option. You'll see pay by bank transfer or something similar, um, or people understand it. And it's about that efficiency side of it, but it's obviously taking cost out of the system as well in these payments. Um, you know, that's obviously good for merchants as they come back into saving money, potential card processing fees, and, said, and making sure that we have an efficient and safer way to pay. Um, so there's, there's so many of these use cases now every week. You know, we don't, we're not the first to hear of those because it's the technology that underpins it and it's how, how we see entrepreneurial and uh, the entrepreneurial spirit put that into market. Um, but I think it's incredible really to, to look at that and as we start to apply that into so many different areas where we're going to see that you know, really take off over the last uh, next couple of years. Mm. I, I love the ITV example. That's so my right. favorite so far. I'm going to. I didn't I'm know about it either. I, did, I didn't know about it. So I was so excited. I sort of sent it on the WhatsApp group for the XK. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yasmin, we, we obviously we've heard um, about the kind of treasury work that's going on in, in Brazil. We've obviously heard about um, payments and, and ITV now as well. Um, any other examples of use cases that you think are going to be, you know, growthy um, in the future? Yeah, so I think I'll start with what's seen the most growth um, in terms of, you know, small businesses. So bank feeds into accounting software. So previously, businesses had to upload manual documents to get their bank statements into accounting software, which you can imagine how long that would take. And also just the time it takes away from them growing their business or doing anything else that's productive. 
um, is, is just not not great in terms of experience. So what, what, where we've seen lots of success is the bank automated bank fees into accounting software. So it digitizes those bank statements going in, in because that needs to happen. It's like an imperative to them running their business. And then in terms of where I see the most growth in the future, so the bank feeds, I would say, very like very successful outcome, is payments. So similar to, to Charlotte, um, especially from an innovation perspective, I, I see more fintechs moving away from using traditional rails and moving more towards using open banking rails and also thinking more about, you know, what experiences are really, really painful for small businesses that we can help resolve so even as simple as the example i gave earlier making payments inside the accounting software embedding payments in further systems that businesses use is obviously like really really useful and um something that we'll see more and more of and then in recent news i suppose to pull out an example go cardless this week just announced a, a massive funding round with their primary focus being on open banking that's an example of a fintech who has traditionally been running their business on a traditional rail like backs um, it is Vax um, and, and SEPA and is, is moving to, to try to build out a, a global banking network, right? So I think we'll see more, more and more competition kind of spurring on in that realm. And then going back to the data consolidation piece, because we just did a, a recent study, I keep coming back to this because uh, it comes up so often um, with what we do, that um, we, we basically surveyed small businesses and 21% of those businesses basically said that they would not use an application if it didn't integrate to their accounting software versus their bank account. So that shows that the emphasis on a different software system that hasn't necessarily had any regulation around it is, is really, really high. Mm. I also, uh, before we, yeah. we move on from the use case question, Oliver, I feel uh, like we would be remiss if we didn't mention a buy now, pay later, which uh, exists both in open banking regions and exists in market-driven regions, very much so, like the US. We're talking about something that Nobody would have known what on earth you were talking about uh, maybe a little over a year ago, and now it's grown into something like a, a what four billion dollar global market with a projection to something like twenty billion by twenty twenty eight or twenty thirty. Um, a wonderful example of how uh, embedded finance can work and uh, where we're headed. Mm, mm. Some some very good use cases there. Um, just a reminder for our audience before we move on, um, we would love to hear your questions. I can see four of them have already have already come through. So make sure you file them uh, below and we will get to them towards the end of this session. Now, in the UK, open banking has also received uh, its fair share of criticism. Um, we, we touched on it a little bit earlier uh, in the past and more recently. Um, concerns over rollout uh, happening too slowly um, or that it's failed in some of its initial objectives of spurring more competition in the banking sector. Um, I guess I'd love to ask, uh, Yasmin, I'll start with yourself. I'd love to ask, what do you make of these criticisms of open banking? Um, so I guess I'll start with kind of reminding ourselves of how fundamental and systematic what you know open banking is. And I don't think when we decided to actually bring it to market or you know the, the initial plans were drawn up that we could have really predicted all of the possibilities and, and how it would go but i think there is a long way still you know five six years on to reach its full potential and um speaking of you know controversy and some of those criticism and comments i know ann bowden has um very narrowly kind of defined the goal of open banking as increasing competition you know that was a, a general concept of why open banking was a thing in the first place. But for me, it's it's much broader than that. 
For me, open banking is the first iteration of a wider movement towards open data. And it's particularly important, not just from a small business perspective, obviously, I want to put a lot of emphasis on that because I feel like they've been kind of kicked to the curb a bit, but really for, for all of us. Um, and I think open banking was, was, a, was a successful step in that direction. The most important part of really making sure that the wider purpose is catered to is, in my opinion, um, is mandating that technology providers in the same way that banks were mandated to don't have any control over the data. So the fundamental need is for the data to be owned by the right people, right? And that's us as consumers, it's business owners as from an SME perspective. And then I guess from the perspective of where the data sits, it shouldn't, to really summarize what I mean there, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be dictated by um, the, the technology provider or, or the bank in open banking's case. So open access should be just mandated for all technology providers so that people and businesses can use their data to get better products and services, which is part of the other reason why open banking was a thing. So I think we need to think of it a little bit more holistically rather than just base it on has it actually helped increase competition. Um, because I think from a business perspective mainly, it's actually highly impactful for us to focus on ensuring things like bank feeds are echoed in other places to make sure that they're they're running more efficient efficiently rather because it's so impactful to our economy if we get this right opening up access to their systems and allowing their systems to talk to each other because of how complex they are um, they'll be able to operate more efficiently they'll start growing because they're operating more efficiently and that will have a positive impact on gdp both domestically and globally. So again, if we start bringing ourselves up a level, I think to really think about the impact and focus on the right groups um, and the right use cases to attack, I think there's, you know, the, the full potential is undiscovered. Mm -hmm. That was a very good answer. And I think you touched on a lot of a lot of good points there, especially about how do we measure success, and also about how the world has moved on since 2016, 2018, we've redefined what what open banking is and what we think about when we talk about open data going forward. Um, Charlotte, I have to bring this to yourself as well, obviously. Um, any, anything to add there? And what, what do you think about this, um, the criticisms that open banking has had over the years? It was certainly the, there were frustrations in, in, the, in the slow rollout. Um, I think we all know that. You're dealing with legacy systems um, across multiple providers on the back of it being a competition remedy in the UK was never going to be an easy journey. And trying to find a, a way where you consult on that, and normally when you consult, you normally can find some form of compromise. Um, there wasn't many compromises to be made. This was a competition remedy in the UK's case, obviously, between the nine biggest deposit takers, you know, all the way through to the fintechs who wanted to open up everything and you know, and respond to where consumers and businesses' um, demands were. Um, and and I think when we look back on that, you look at that, that tension, and we still see this. You know, we obviously we sit in the middle of this, and you, you, we put a consultation out. It's very rare you're going to see the meeting in the middle. Um, you're going to see two very opposing views. Um, so it was never going to be probably a seamless journey with all of those things taken taken into account. Um, but said we have to remember of just what the technology can do. And I think that's what I always talk about. I try not to talk about it as open banking. Go, what has open banking technology done? And what can open banking technology do as a result of that? And having you know, those standards, the centralized standards with, you know, in, in the UK, UK's case, a centralized body in the, in the middle of those, looking at that rollout, um, I think has contributed to the success of it. Um, and 
you know, having people around the table, not always agreeing, but you know, like always, you know, there there are people around the same table discussing this, looking at it, and allowing regulators and in, in, in our case, the trustee role to to consider those um, opinions and then you know, make decisions on the back of that. And I think that's very important to have a a democratic view and sort of discussion around it, but also recognizing this is about bringing in competition and more openness and more transparency and more efficiency there. So we have to remember that because you could just look at it and say, right, what does this look like? Is it right or wrong? Is it, let's really focus on the outcomes. And I think it has made the point. The outcomes are what's going to determine the success. And I think we can all we can all agree that there has been some great outcomes for uh, for the end users. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I liked your sort of point you made there about the I, a bit of tension around the table, you know, being part of it, being part of the um, positive change. You need a bit of that, I guess, to um, to move forward and to, to make good, good decisions. Well, um, you know, you know, I think when you look at it, you know, when you come out of the banking environment and many of us have worked in, in banks or with banks you know, and some guys during our careers, um, and then you take an entrepreneur, sometimes, you know, quite young or who's worked in a tech firm or come straight out of out of university and has looked at this from their perspective and put themselves in the in the eyes of the consumer, um, you're a completely different mindset. So they're looking at the art of the possible and you've got these legacy systems sitting there holding back that because it just seems so hard. And you need to have both of those you know, there to be able to drive that forward. And you can't just have one or the other. You've got to work mm-hmm. out, you know, what are we trying to achieve? And I think, you know, I think that uh, you know, around the world that has, that has happened. Mm. Interesting. Um, and the open banking implementation entity um, itself has been in a bit of a period of change recently, both with your recent arrival um, and also in the wake of um, a report that came out last year about the OBIE's governance and, and workplace culture. Um, you've obviously come in and been making some big changes, um, substantial changes with new directors, uh, new CEO uh, and head of HR just last week. Um, can you tell us a bit about how that process of change is going? Yes, and when we look back, um, you know, this was designed to obviously be an implementation entity that nobody would really have thought would still be there in four years' time under a competition remedy um, and to all our, our discussions earlier. Um, and so when you set up like a programme, then you're not always then thinking perhaps of the organisation as a whole, you're thinking of what the technology is trying to deliver. Um, you know, so it has been an incredibly difficult um, period for you know, for for former contractors, but also for our current staff who are so proud of the purpose and the mission of what they do, and you know, and you know, trying to keep them on side and you know, and really motivated to do this under you know, a period of inc- incredible scrutiny. Um, you know, we do have an employee environment now that's been work that's been going on now for 15, 18 months to to convert everyone, so we are employees now. Um, as you said, we have we've put in new governance over the last three months, new directors, new degreed arrangements for those who are looking at those, which allow um, you know, to recognise when there's conflicts, but also when you know, I can recuse myself, for example, of any conflicts, um, to look at how you know, an organisation that is quite high growth in itself, because of just the period of you know, what it's had to achieve in, in the time. Um, and then looking at the future as well. So as you said to you, our, our new CEO um, and the first CEO of the organisation landed this this Monday, which I'm I'm delighted about. I must admit, um, you know, and and he will be focusing on that operational side, the strategy, not just for the end of the roadmap, but obviously 
for whatever we transition to. And that allows me as chair and trustee to have you know, that sort of period of where I can I can look at the challenge and scrutiny with my fellow board directors, um, but make sure that we've got the governance in place. Um, so yes, it has been a particularly busy few months. Um, you know, I'm delighted with some of the you know the achievements the team has done, and I you know I also want to thank my own team, you know, for for continuing with with the day job um, when you are under that period of scrutiny. But we will we will come out of this in a much better place, and you know in in you know all ready for whatever comes next hmm well i'm definitely going to ask more about what comes next in a minute i don't know if i'll get any answers but i'll, I'll certainly ask the questions um uh, so let's let's look ahead let's look ahead to the future um we've touched on it a little bit already but open finance is a phrase that is increasingly being used um uh, around how new sets of data might be included or excluded um, within open banking. I guess, first question, Yasmin, I'll, I'll open it up to you here. Um, how, do we, how do we get to open finance in the UK? Yeah, so I think all of, the, all of the conversations around open finance so far in the UK have been around mortgages, investments, and pensions. I think the first thing is to think about broadening that. Um, and particularly, you know, I'm talking about from the perspective of, of small businesses, they make up 99% of the economy, and as, as I've already touched on, and I say very, very regularly, and we need to be factoring them into the minimum viable criteria for open finance. But unfortunately, their, their primary data sources have been excluded, right? They don't, they don't get mortgages, uh, they don't really manage investments, and they don't really manage pensions in the same way that consumers do. So to be clearer about what I mean by this, Small businesses don't just use a, a bank account to manage their finances. They don't have a savings account. In fact, their accounting and e-commerce and payment systems are much more of a system of record than a bank account. They spend hours and hours a week on average just maintaining the financial admin between those systems. So I think much more importance needs to be placed on opening up access to these types of systems. And if we talk about open finance, it feels like a really appropriate place to start since we've we've implemented open banking. It's It's been a good number of years now if we're opening up the agenda to open finance which is already happening and i'm super pleased to see it we also need to be including the right user groups in that and factoring in you know if we shouldn't we be catering to 99 percent of the economy and making sure that their systems are opened up and are accessible and they are getting good experiences i think for me um in the uk we need to start thinking about it we seem to be um, one of the countries that are definitely ahead of ahead of the game in terms of introducing it but it's just that criteria i think needs to be kind of assessed mm. interesting um Eyal, i'm gonna i'm gonna jump to yourself here because i want to i want to sort of bring you into this um open finance how are other countries approaching this this shift and the move beyond open banking so it really varies uh, from region to region because different places have different sensitivities. I, I, I want to start by saying uh, I'm a little jealous of Yasmin having the chair of an organization that can actually make this happen on the same panel um, who can sort of take this home and, and, and drive it forward. We don't have that yet in Canada. Um, Yasmin was very generous in saying we have a standard. We have a very nice report from the government. Unfortunately, we do not have a standard yet. We, we, we're still trying to establish the timeline. I'm trying to do what I can to, to help make that happen. But as I said earlier, even in market-driven regions um, like uh, North America, 
you're starting to see what you could call little O, uh, little F, I guess, or open finance um, as they start to move towards other parts of financial services starting to take not just their API strategy more seriously and open up access to data, but to do it in a consortium driven way that tries to establish some common standards. A lot of these organizations have regulated standards for things like the way they do audits and files. Uh, insurance records are a great example. Uh, so they're just trying to lean into that, and digitize that. But if you take it a look at a region like uh, Brazil, um, they already published open insurance APIs regulated. Uh, they're, I think, uh, February where they're going to go live. So you're already starting to see them move into that direction. This uh, uh, financial products beyond just these uh, these retail deposit accounts. Um, it's interesting, though, how different regulatory bodies view that question as well. Um, if you take Canada, the letter, the, the report that they published, sorry about all the beeping, the report that they published um, explicitly said leave insurance for later, right? So even though you see some market activity, they said uh, mortgages, investments, lending products, but insurance, leave it for later. So for them, they consider that something of um, a risky market. They, they, if I remember correctly, outright said, uh, this is too complex, it's too risky, leave it for later. Uh, by contrast, uh, this was immediately where Brazil went. Uh, they didn't stop at mortgages and investment products. They went right at insurance. So I think the question of what do you mean when you say open finance, there, there's a general definition that is uh, financial products beyond just uh, retail deposits and retail payments. How broad of a brush you choose to use when you're saying financial products uh, really depends on the region and the, the order depends on the region. But I want to come back to something that Yasmin said that was quite quite right and at this point quite well understood in the, in the open banking community. Um, open banking is the start. Open banking is the thin end of a, a much larger wedge. So even if by 2023, when you say open finance, you mean investments and mortgages, and by 2024, when you say open finance, you mean insurance, well, you're, you're sort of uh, splitting hairs here. Uh, we mean the expansion of this infrastructure for the secure consensual sharing of data to spread to all financial products in the fullness of time in a way that's safe, secure, and provides the utility you get from open banking. But moreover, the wedge doesn't stop there. Australia already understands this. So that's why they called their, their law the consumer data right. It doesn't have an industry in there. And as a result, you're already seeing them release open energy APIs, open healthcare APIs, open telecom, uh, at least plans for, for some of those. Um, I, I think they went live with their open energy. Uh, so this is part of open data, right? This move from open banking to open finance to open data, uh, the die has been cast. Uh, where this is going to get really fun is when it starts to collide with the kinds of data uh, that are on the other side of this divide um, and you get into open social and open search. Um, but make no mistake, that that's where we're headed. Mm, mm, interesting. Um, before I go to some audience questions, I, Charlotte, I want to make sure you get a, a chance to, to chip in on this. And I guess we're hearing about what's going on in places like Brazil, Australia, where they've they've you know, having a real top-down legislative sort of approach, um, very forward thinking. Do, do you think it was a mistake uh, to, to exclude um, open finance from within open banking? Um, you know, we're in, a, we're in a sort of holding pattern at the moment. Um, do you think we should have been a bit more forward-looking when we, when we started off? 
I mean, like everything, it's 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 easy to look back and, and look at that and think we, we never would have assumed that you know, we would have been here in four years, um, you know, when this was started. Um, you know, and sometimes you have to you have to do things in stages. Um, so I would say I would believe you know, one step to the left or one step to the right. If you try to do everything at the same time, then guess what? It ends up getting delayed and confused. Um, so I think you starting at that point you know, with the open banking instead as a as a competition remedy that was enforced, um, you know, has has meant the UK has you know has allowed itself to have this centralised body which we haven't seen across Europe. Um, I think if we tried to do that in a wider sense, that probably would have been incredibly uh, hard. And where do you where do you even start? And who do you get around the table in terms of governance and everything else and prioritisation? Um, you know, every week I get asked questions from the ecosystem and the wider ecosystem of what happens in open finance. And obviously, that's not in our gift to give. We're the, we're the standard setting body. Um, but you know, obviously, we're all aware that there's conversations you know going on about what does that look like going forward transition or whatever transition means into a future entity we have to protect what has been achieved we have to continue the momentum that's what's been done now if we stand still now we'll go backwards and um, so we have to even within open banking there's there's more to be done as, as you will be aware and um, before we even move on to open finance um but i think everyone recognizes of just what open finance can do and what it can achieve and he said and looking at those outcomes Yasmin was talking about for SMEs and giving people that financial passport that allows them to get the best journey across all the financial services not just banking is where we will move to at some point now is that going to be market-led is that going to be legislative-led is there going to be a centralized body to bring that in I think all all huge questions um that you are going to be answered you know, by you know, by regulators and policymakers over coming months and years mm. well, we'll have to we'll have to wait and uh, wait with bated breath to see what those those decisions are um now I'm going to go to audience questions but before I do um I did say at the beginning of the podcast I would have a second exciting announcement so for our audience um to let you know, we have just announced the dates and the venue for Altfi's 2022 Festival of Finance. So on the 27th and 28th of April, we're going to be heading to the Park Plaza Riverbank Hotel in London for a two-day fintech extravaganza, um, where we'll be exploring the latest developments in neobanking, alternative lending, buy now, pay later. And yes, we will have a cluster of sessions on open banking too. Um, now, just like the virtual festivals we've held in 2020 and 2021, the Festival of Finance remains entirely free uh, and registrations are open now. So you can find the link under the attachment tab on Bright Talk, or if you're listening to this as a podcast, it'll be in your show notes. So we look forward to seeing many people from our audience uh, there in April. Um, now, switching back to audience questions, there's a great one here, um, which is, do the panel think that large banks should be allowed to charge for access, uh, for open banking access? Uh, and will that encourage large banks to become more involved in open banking? Um, Charlotte, I remember asking a very similar question um, to, to your predecessor and, in fact, to many people in the open banking industry. But I would love to know what your view is on it. It's, it's quite a contentious topic. But do you think banks should be able to charge for access to open banking? Um, you know, and I think I have to be quite careful, you know, as as the trustee, um, you know, weighing in on that. I already have, as I said, trying to keep everyone around the table. I think those are decisions that, you know, obviously, uh, you know, others will have to take. Um, 
I think again we have to we have to look at you, especially as we move over to a new entity and get continue the momentum of what does that funding model look like. Obviously, as you will be aware, the the CMA nine has paid for the setting up of the entity to bring that competition in and to set the standards for whatever comes next. Um, and I think you know, many many recognise that that funding model is going to change over over the coming months um, as we transition, and you know who how that will be split between wanting to continue with the competition, um, but also um, making it perhaps more equitable for non-CMA9 or fintechs who are who are taking that data there. So I think you know, that's that's something that's being considered um, uh, a lot by the CMA, and I will I will leave them to their deliberations. <laughs> um, Eyal, from your from your position in North America, um, obviously, as you said earlier, it's more of a sort of market forces situation. Um, can you can you sort of shine some light on on this topic of allowing banks to charge for access to open banking data? So uh, in market driven success stories, it's interesting. Uh, the banks, I, I think the question in a market driven environment is not can they because of course they can. Uh, should they? Um, it, it's interesting. I don't think that uh, they I don't think it's a matter of, of, of saying to them, there's a rule that you can't charge. I think what they're going to realize is the market forces are making it uh, almost impossible for them to charge. Um, in successful market-driven stories, and there's a great one out of Southeast Asia that I'd, I'd love to share, um, they understand that the goal here is not to create a new revenue stream by charging for your APIs. Even banks that have done that successfully, uh, they just don't generate that much revenue. Right, Nordia, I mentioned Gunner, they, they have a wonderful example of um, taking an open banking API, which they are not allowed to charge for uh, as per the PSD2 regulation, but then turning it into a streaming equivalent, which they did charge for, and they got a bunch of users. But that's not like bank level revenue that you're talking about here. They're not a software company at the end of the day. By contrast, Axway has a customer called Permata Bank out of Indonesia. And what they did is publish an account open API uh, in the absence of regulation and go out there and actively market it to developers. They really pushed it the way you would push a real product and of course they didn't charge for it the whole object was get developers onto my platform get them using my apis what happened as a result was lots and lots of fintech developers used this account open api in their offerings and created all sorts of different ways to open accounts to the bank most of them died on the vine but one of them a marriage planning app so an app that has nothing to do ostensibly with banking it's a completely different context you're planning a wedding it suddenly goes viral because of COVID restrictions. So everybody's stuck at home and it turns out the only way you can plan a wedding and have an escrow account and have people contribute to a gift registry and so on, it was through this app. It explodes and all of the account opening, all of these shared accounts that are opening underneath are all going back to Permata Bank. They realized a over 400% increase year over year in account opens. So that's not a 10 or 15% increase. That's a 400% increase because they were willing to give away their APIs for free, get themselves out there into the ecosystem, embed their offering into other digital contexts and reap the gains. That is a fantastic use case. Um, and and I, I look forward to uh, to seeing it, it take off in popularity, maybe in other, in other countries around the world. Um, there's, there's a question here, Eyal, I'm going to come back to you because it's directed at yourself here. You mentioned the treasury use case earlier, um, and someone has asked, is this an example of the tail wagging the dog? Isn't um, isn't driving with use cases, 
I'm actually not sure what that question is actually asking. I, um, I have to confess I saw it because I have access to the <laughs> question panel here. And it's been making me think because it's a great question. I don't know who out there asked it, but great question. Um, <laughs> Any uh, thoughts on it? Yeah, uh, lots. Um, it, you're not wrong. Uh, it is sort of the tail wagging the dog. Um, but at the same time, you could easily make the argument the other way uh, that that regulators saying you have to banks open up your data with APIs. That's the tail wagging the dog, right? Can't you just let the market innovate and do what the market does? Um, you will you will certainly find people on both sides of that argument. Um, and yes, uh, having one without the other, where it's only the market driving the use cases, and then you're de facto filling in APIs. Or the other, where it's only regulators saying, sorry, CMA now, and you have to do this, and we don't care if you realize value, this is about uh, consumer rights to portability and so on. As I said earlier, those two, um, if you draw that line between the two, between the market and the regulators, that's what you will end up with, is this: the, the two sides that think the other is the tail wagging the dog. Um, when it works, uh, it turns into something much more like a flywheel, where you've got the market driving innovation, which is forcing the regulator to say, well, we need to expand what we're doing with the standard and the regulation to support this innovation uh, and level the playing field where it needs to be leveled and avoid concentration of uh, um, market players, uh, feeding that back into the market, allowing them to innovate more and creating that, that virtuous cycle. Uh, that's, that's the goal. Fantastic. Um, well, thank you very much for tackling that question. And I'm afraid that is that is all we have time for. We got through a few audience questions, um, not all of them, but, but quite a few of them. Um, so that just leaves it to me to wrap up the discussion for today. And obviously to say a big thank you to our audience uh, and listeners for joining us uh, and asking lots of brilliant questions. And of course, thank you to Charlotte, uh, Yasmin, and Yal uh, for being part of the discussion today. Thank you all very much. Thank, thank you. you for having me. Thanks, Oliver. Thank you. Um, now, we'll be back on the 10th of March, live at the usual time of 11 a.m. for the next episode of Money Talks, uh, where I'll be handing over the, um, the reins to Altfi's Daniel Lanyon, who'll be joined by Tim Waterman, uh, the Chief Commercial Officer at Zopa, and Amani Atia, who's the CEO of ThinCats, to discuss the lasting impact of COVID on alternative lending. You can register for that webinar or indeed any of our 2022 Bright Talk um, Money Talks episodes right now. Uh, they're all on Bright Talk, so uh, make sure you sign up or subscribe to the podcast to have them delivered directly to your smartphone. Anyway, uh, all very exciting. So I hope to see many of you there next month. But for now, uh, I'll say have a good day. Thank you and goodbye.